Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. I'm a composer, conductor, and music educator. On this podcast, I talk with other composers and discover how they began their journey into composition. Join me each week as we explore their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. To learn more about this podcast and access a complete archive of episodes, including the series of shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website at sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Brett Stewart. Brett is co-founder, composer-in-residence, and conductor of the Millennial Choirs and Orchestras, or MCO as it's often called. He has composed and arranged nearly 150 works for the organization, including the full-length oratorio Messiah in America and the full-length patriotic work To Be American. Brett received a bachelor's degree in piano performance from Brigham Young University a master's degree in choral conducting from California State University, and a doctorate degree in choral conducting with cognate studies in composition from the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. Brett Stewart, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. So I'll come back to MCO in a moment because I do want to talk about that, but I wanted to start start a bit further back. So you're currently living in Texas, but I didn't. I know you didn't actually grow up there. Where are you from originally? You want to know originally, originally, or just originally, originally? originally. <laughs> I was actually born in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Idaho Falls. And then what What was sort of your journey? Where did places you just landed? Kind of, you know, I we had a stint four years or so in Arizona, Chandler, Arizona, as a kid, back to Idaho Falls as a, um, as a, a kid also. And then um, where we landed when I was about eight years old was Huntington Beach, California. That's where my mom was from. And we moved in with her parents um, when I was about eight years old. So that's that's where I say that I was raised is Huntington Beach, you know, because that was until I graduated from high school. That was where I lived and actually went back there. Um, that's where we started MCO was in Orange County, California. So I went back there and and was there for another seven years raising my kids. Oh, well, I was cool. there off and on between schooling too. So we spent a lot of time in California. <laughs> I moved away from Huntington Beach when I was about six. So okay, just missed each other. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so okay. when did you start actually making music? Were you playing piano from the womb? Exactly. Yeah, there. I sing, most mostly singing from the womb. So my my dad and mom are both musical, um, and uh, my dad didn't do it as a career, but as a pastime. He wrote songs. He was actually, he, he, he played piano growing up as did my mom. My dad also played violin. My mom played clarinet. So it was kind of this, just the thing. By the time they, we were old enough to even sing or carry a tune, we were harmonizing and, and singing as kids, singing in ta- you know, church and school talent shows and singing around the piano, that sort of thing. And then we had piano lessons with my mom and eventual with, eventually with other piano teachers. So I know your your brother is musical because I know your brother, but uh, what about other siblings? Did you? Everyone. Everyone. Yeah, my so my oldest sister, my brother, and myself all majored in piano. So okay. we were all you know competitive pianists, and um, <laughs> the other two play, you know, and and um, that also grew up taking piano lessons and singing in the choirs at school and at church, and so we all have we all do it. Yeah, it was Very reckless. Nice. It was requisite in our home to, to <laughs> take piano lessons. <laughs> it was not a choice. And you do the same thing with your own kids as well? I don't. Oh. <laughs> my, 
Much to my mother's dismay, I, I uh, they've had piano lessons off and on. They actually, the oldest three took piano lessons from the teacher that Brandon and I and my older sister took from growing up. Very competitive um, and uh, intense uh, piano teacher and piano lessons. And then we moved to Texas. And so that ended and we just didn't strike that back up. But I mean, my kids can play some hymns, you know, those kinds of things. But I did not. MCO sort of became the musical outlet in our family because that's my job and that's what I do. So that was our big, you know, once a week trek, trek an hour or whatever, however long it is to the rehearsal and spend the afternoon. And that was their thing. Other than that, my kids have followed more in their mother's um, passion of sports. They're, my my wife's an athlete. So I did not marry a musician per se. She sings lovely, but she that's not her thing. So um, she's super supportive of what I do, but my kids all play soccer. My boys played football for high school. I mean, it, it, you know, everything I couldn't do. <laughs> so, <laughs> they've, they've done that. <laughs> and I've supported it. All right. So going back to your high school experience, outside of your classical music training, what sort of music were you listening to when you were in high school? Oh, to admit these things. Um to be honest with you, I I did because I was in choir uh, in high school. I did do a lot of listening to choral stuff, but a lot of orchestral. I mean, if we're outside of classical, I'll get to it in a minute. But I did listen to a lot of classical. I, I had caught that bug as a young teen, and was I was ordering those cassette tapes. Remember when you could order the cassette tapes from whatever company, and you'd send in the little stamp and 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 choose the what you wanted and it would come in the mail yeah and I had some money from jobs and piano students I had and so I would order those and eventually compact discs and I would just listen and listen and listen so I loved I loved um, piano concertos and symphonic works and all sorts of things and then I was getting choir in high school and then uh, beyond that I did a lot of listening to the stuff that my dad um, and mom listened to when I was growing up my dad of course it was in the 80s when I was a kid so there was a lot of, and my mom, I mean, it was just a lot of, you know, REO Speedwagon and George Michael and <laughs> just imagine all the 80s artists and then, um, or or back further, Boston, you know, the 70s artists. And then um, I did, as the 90s came, I was always interested in the current music. So as it, through the 80s and 90s, it was Depeche Mode and New Order and Oingo Boingo and, you know, Danny Elfman and and just, you know, all of those, Red Hot Chili Peppers, you name it. I, I, I had the radio on. I always had music. So I was very well-rounded. I enjoyed all that type of music. The only type of music that I could never really get into was hip hop and rap. That was, mm. other than that, I, I could cover pretty much any genre. That's awesome. Happy. Yeah. So do you see any influence from that music in what you're writing now? Probably, like not overtly, mm -hmm. you know, purposely, but but probably rhythmically some things. And, you know, that that tends to creep in. It's just like, we lived, we grew up and lived in an age where, well, even before us, it, music genres just exploded. It was every possibility. And so I'm sure that that's all, as I compose, I know there's things in my, in my memory bank, you know, or in just my experience bank, if you will, that you draw from, but I don't, I don't go, oh yes, I loved that this did. There was one thing that Brandon and I worked on together, um, uh, 
Amazing Grace. We we arranged an Amazing Grace together. And I remember I did the choral and then he came back with the orchestral and we got laughing about one of the things he did in the orchestra. And I literally said to him, this sounds like it's straight off of a new order, you know, a song from the order. And he goes, oh, totally. <laughs> you know, and it was so there there are there's 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 a, a piece of one of my songs that you would probably never notice from the recording, but on a mighty fortress near the end. And, and I did the rhythmic um, version that actually comes from what Martin Luther, we think would have originally done, but of course I modernized it, but there's a piece of it that we got laughing about that sounded like, you know, Annie Lennox, the Eurythmics type of a thing. And we just, yes, yes there is definitely stuff that creeps in, but it's not purposeful. <laughs> That's nice. So, so I first met you and your brother, Brandon, when we were in the BYU Concert Choir under the direction of Rosin Hall. And I have to admit, I was a bit cowed and awed by your piano abilities and musicianship, something I aspired to as a music major. You were majoring in piano performance. So what led you to pursue a career in choral music? Um, I thought I figured that I was going to do that clear back in high school. I only did piano because there's no choral major. You know, there's, uh -huh. there's music ed and that didn't interest me. Um, I don't even know why it just didn't. I think because I had the piano skills, I just thought I'll just do this. But I also had heard that that's what other director, I mean, the two directors at the time that I entered BYU were Ron Staley and Mac Wilberg, and both were piano majors. And so I thought, well, if they did that, then, and I knew of others that had done that, that course. And I thought maybe I should do it, but I did, I did schedule an appointment my freshman year. It was Mac Wilberg's last year at BYU. I scheduled an appointment with him. I was singing in the concert choir with him. And I went in and just asked him. I just said, I want confirmation that I'm on the right path. I want to, I thought I would be, a, I thought I was going to be a college choir director. So I said, I want to do, you know, teach college and, and, and be a choral professor at a university someday. And I said, is this the right course? And he confirmed, yes, absolutely. Stay in piano. That's a great base for a lot of things. And, uh, I, I listened. I, I say fortunately, but sometimes I felt it was unfortunate because that's it's not easy to be a, a piano performance major. That's <laughs> a lonely life. Yeah, a lot of time <laughs> so, in the practice yeah. room. Yeah, in a basement, in a dark basement. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but anyway, that that was kind of why I I did that and and uh, just feeling it was it was a good base and it ended up being an excellent base for composition too. So, yeah, awesome. So let's move to talking about MCO, which has mm -hmm. been the defining ensemble of your career. You and Brandon founded this together, but I want to know why. How did the conversation come about that led to the formation of the Millennial Choirs and Orchestras? Well, as I said, I was I was headed, I was in a doctorate program at the at the Cincinnati Conservatory. And so I was just headed toward being a college professor. And to be honest with you, I had an immense respect for my the professors that I studied with there, Stephen Coker and Earl Rivers. Um, but I remember just kind of watching. I had had, we had our fourth child about a year into my doctorate program in Cincinnati. And um, and I, I figured I would have more kids. I love kids. I've always loved kids. I, I wanted like 10 kids, you know, that didn't end up happening, but it it's pretty close, but it was just, it, we just loved them. And so I thought I'm gonna have a lot of kids and I wanna be able to support this family, but I also wanna be able to be a family man and have a lot of family time and have that kind of flexibility. And I just watched these professors throughout my schooling um, really, not only married to the job, but also just the time commitment and the, um, um, the, just everything about now little, did I, this is how stupid I am. Little did I know that, that MCO would end up being the same 
kind of a mental and, and time <laughs> commitment, but just in a different way. But it was the process that led me to start thinking, is this what I really want to do? And of course, I had wanted to do this since I was a junior in high school. My wife and I dated in high school. So she was with this, like, she's with me this entire journey. And now I'm coming to her saying in the middle of a doctorate program, I don't know that I want to do this. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's going, okay, so let's figure this out. So it, it just ended up honestly being a matter of really fervent prayer. And um, there was a particular night where I had very particular inspiration that I was not, that I was supposed to start this thing that I started. And back then, I mean, I have some script chicken scratch of what it was when I woke up, like what, what, what just happened and, and what, what just came to me and what am I supposed to be doing? But I literally, um, we called uh, Brandon probably the next day. And I said, I've had this idea and I think it's what I'm supposed to do. And I, um, I can't do it alone. And I want to know if you'll do it with me. Now, Brandon was, was at, at Juilliard and he was getting his master's in piano performance. And he was doing also choral cognate studies there because he was interested in that as well. But I don't think he ever considered choral would be his career. But as I described what I wanted to do and he, uh, he really didn't hesitate. It was kind of like, I, yeah, it's a go. I just talked to my wife, but yeah, it's a go. I'm, I, I'd love to do this. And Brandon and I had done lots of duo piano recitals and, and done, as you know, you know, at BYU, we just worked together a lot. Yeah. So we knew we could work together. We knew that, I, I think I always figured that the Lord sent Brett and Brandon Stewart down as a package team. Um, it deep in my heart, I just knew that it just was just a thing. And, and it was, he always wanted to do stuff with me and I always wanted to do stuff with him. And so it came to make a career out of it. Um, it was a, yeah, let's do this. And, and uh, other things we had thought about or dabbled in or wondered about and, and they didn't materialize. And so this was something that we just felt right about from the get-go. And so it, we did it. Yeah. Now, I should note the plurality in the name Millennial Choirs and Orchestras. So right. not only do you have choirs for very young children all the way up to adults, but you have locales of MCO spread throughout the United States, the most recent right. edition in Kansas City. So why the decision to create so many ensembles and where do you see MCO, go, MCO going in the future? Yeah, it didn't start that way. Uh, back to that story of, of how it started, it was Orange County, California, because that's where our family was. That's where all of our friends were. That's where we grew up. And so it was that it was never, honestly, never even a, a thought in my mind that it would grow beyond that. We were going to go and make a difference in this, in the hometown where we lived or had grown up and, and where we had these people we loved and adored. And then pretty quickly, um, once it started and um, we, we realized what it was and what it did for people and and uh, kind of the fire that it ignited, it started to get people in other communities started to get word and ask for it. And that's when the idea started to go, well, maybe we need to have this in other communities. And then that just sort of blew up to, to the seven current locales and um, yeah, I mean, it's, we, 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 we continue to wonder how we can keep growing because um, just it's, it's always the scramble of, okay, now we need more help and you're, and just, and, and just employees and just running the organization and everything. It's just what probably whatever small business goes through, but yet at the same time, it just keeps happening. We something happens where, I mean, Kansas city was the most unique one. They just started a campaign on Facebook 
a bunch of like moms and maybe some dads. I don't know that we're just like, we want this here and we're not going to leave you alone until you bring it here. (laughs) So it was that kind of a thing. And so when that interest came up, then, you know, how could we ignore it? And then, you know, in Idaho, Boise, for instance, that all started because I had a friend I had gone to high school and college with and and roomed with in college and and sang in a quartet with, and he had a job at the College of Idaho and he lived there in Boise. And we said, hey, Boise would be a great place to have this. And there's a, a ready conductor who's talented just sitting there waiting. And so we hired him. Now he's off at BYU now, but but that yeah. was the reason. So every locale kind of had a different reason for starting. Um and uh, and that just keeps happening. And our board of directors wants us to be able to open them up in more places. And and the, uh, also people of uh, people of stature, and I guess you could say in different um, places that have influenced and advised us are also saying the same thing. This needs to be in more places. So we're just we're in that growth mode right now, which is great. That's it's awesome. a great blessing, and it's also super. Um, stressful so <laughs> could you tell our could you tell our listeners where are those seven locales that you have right now so we started in california and then we opened one in, in maricopa county or east valley arizona um so gr- kind of greater phoenix area gilbert and then we moved to dallas texas next from um and at the same time we opened up utah uh it was in the utah valley area and then after that was boise after boise was austin texas and um, we began to expand more into the Davis County area of Utah as well at the same time as Austin, um, but that's still one Utah locale. And then Kansas City. Now there are two in Texas, um, and and so you know we say that there's seven locales, um, but there's also seven states because I count Kansas and Missouri with Kansas City. So we so we oh, say that go. we got. For for uh, <laughs> we've got a twofer for Kansas City, right? Because so there are seven locales, also seven states. Even though there's two in one locale, there's also two states in another locale. So if that made any sense at all, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so that's where we are right now. That's awesome. Well, something that you and I have in common is that we both have seven children. So yeah. how do you manage the balance of family life, composing, conducting, etc.? I don't. <laughs> I don't manage that very well. Uh, it's it's uh, like I said, the fact that I was able to, in fact, my my wife has said oftentimes we I would have for her she'll say I would have never been able to have this many kids if if you weren't flexible, you know. And it, she's saying it as a, a in in a place of gratitude that there's that there's this flexibility. But when it rains, it pours. So when it's busy season and when it's crunch time for comp for composing or for concerts or starting up, you know, whatever it is, whatever we're in, you know, whether it's a tour, whether it's starting up a new locale, like this last semester was pretty, if you had looked at my list of travel, we'll, we'll open up my, I, I travel almost exclusively on Southwest, except to Boise because, because it's horrible to Boise. This is a plug for American Airlines to perform <laughs> Dallas to Boise. But um, if you looked at my apps for flights, it was ridiculous. It went, you had to scroll several times through all of the, through all wow. of the flights. It just happened to be that kind of a semester. Um, and, and Mindy picks up those pieces brilliantly. And so we just work as a team. It's, it just works. And that's, I, my wife's super high functioning. <laughs> I think she's more high functioning than me. That's so, awesome. Yeah, it, it just works. Yeah. And now your, your oldest daughter about to be married. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah my oldest daughter and, um, we have a son dating They're They're both, um, 
they're they've both served missions for our church and are back and yeah so they're growing up and we're going to just probably be adding more to this to this family it's going to be great well, congratulations so i'm going to tell you... all of these kids that they have one of seven places they can live okay. and that's kind of a, that's kind of where it ends and <laughs> that's your you get seven choices here that's right well if you open up mco in other places they'll have other options okay fine <laughs> so who would you consider to be some of your major influences in the way you work and the influences and what influences from them do you see in what you do okay are we talking um in, in any way artistically organizationally Art- competitionally? whatever influences you see i have to say that one of one of my first biggest um, influencers would have been Mac Wilbur. I'm going to say as af- after high school, I had an unbelievable high school teacher and I had an unbelievable high school, a choral teacher and an unbelievable high school um, uh, piano teacher who were unbelievable. So mentors just in general, I, I was blessed with these people are the most intense um oozing with musicality people that I have ever met in my life still to this day. And that's clear back from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that passion for, for music and intensity and perfection and all those types of things was already starting there. But once I got to college um, and, and even a little bit before Mac Wilbur, just compositionally, I loved what he did. So I wrote a whole master's, my master's thesis was on Mac Wilberg and Evan Stevens. Evan Stevens was a tabernacle choir director back in the turn of the century, 18 to 1900s. And I sort of juxtaposed him with Mac Wilberg as a turn of the century conductor from the 1900s to the Mm. 20s. So it was like, these guys were just, they were movers and shakers. They were brilliant. They were changing the way people thought about, you know, whatever realm they were in and, and so I've always loved that. I've always loved people who think big and do big things and and make a, a big mark. And so those were huge. Um, Rosalind Hall, my gosh, like I, I have learned so much from her. And uh, and that was that was meant to be at that time in my life. She's been a huge supporter. And um, I I just again oozing with musicality, demand, perfection, um, all of it. And so it's very clear when people know who our mentors are, they go, well, that's why Brett and Brandon are the way that they are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, as far as, as far as just compositionally, probably Tchaikovsky is my favorite composer of all time. I love romantic melodies. I love the whole, everything that started to happen from Beethoven on in, in that period. And, but um, I always joke that Brahms came up with the most beautiful melodies and it stopped like, two minutes too soon you know like he would start a melody and you'd go oh keep going and he doesn't and Tchaikovsky took it and went like almost too long sometimes right. was, oh I got everything I wanted and now you know and so like I'm just cadence already yes 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 right <laughs> and so I just love that I love I love that you just get everything that you want and um and uh from that I mean I, I there's a whole bunch in between but um John Williams Brandon and I both draw a lot from John Williams I think that when it's all said and done, he's going to be known as the the greatest composer of the 1900s and and you know of the 20 and 21st centuries. That the credit in the classical world, it's starting to come, but you know, and and there's people that have 
delved into his compositions and and looked at it from every angle. And but it's still there's still this kind of nose in the air attitude of well that's movie score that's, composing yeah you know that's for movie you know and it's it's that kind of a thing. But I'm telling you, um, if 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 Verdi and the rest of them were 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 scoring the entertainment of the 19th century obviously you know and there's a list of them but john williams et al were are composing the entertainment of the 20th century and there's nothing wrong with that it just happened to be movies instead of opera or you know right. whatever but um absolutely bernstein's another one that's one of my one of my just i just i connect with those composers so yeah this the, those are them those are my awesome. favorites yeah. all right i got one more question for you before we take a quick break okay. so you have what i assume is your favorite job that you could have so what was your least favorite job you've ever had? Oh, least favorite job. I actually don't have a least favorite job. Oh, well, that's nice. I've actually thought I've actually thought through this before as I've told my kids the different jobs I had. I had a lot of jobs um, through teenage years and early marriage and everything. I even did temp jobs with secretarial work and I loved it. I loved filing papers. Because my brain, I, I'm certainly undiagnosed ADHD. I just, just too many things going on. But my brain to have a little task to do and go, okay, this goes here and this goes here, totally fine for me. I had no problem. I could totally be a postal worker. <laughs> like that would be, would be work. And I also, um, I love, I love having that kind of focused job to do. But I also love people. So throw me in a job with people, and I'll, I can, I could totally do. I could totally like the Office show. Could totally do it. I would have right. a blast. Like, it, I, I don't have a job I haven't liked. Even I worked at Taco Bell for two summers, um, right before, um, you know, as I my last two summers of my high school, and I absolutely loved it. Started to learn. I start. I, ju I just learned so much and loved the people, and and that was Taco Bell. My wife would come through the drive-through on her tandem bike. Um, because I worked the drive-through and you know, ring her bell and just tease me, you know. And I'm like, I, I just I love that job. No problem. I thought I'd hate it, but I ended up loving it. Fabulous. Yeah. All right. Well, after a quick break, we'll come back and listen to some of Brett's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Dr. Brett Stewart. So this could probably go without saying, but all the pieces we'll listen to today are performed by the Millennial Choirs and Orchestras. So the first piece we're going to listen to is The New Colossus from To Be American. I have to say, this actually creates a really nice bookend for the Movable Dough series so far. So this is episode 99, right before our big 100th episode spectacular. And in episode one, I talked to Sandra Choi and talked about his New Colossus. So now we get to talk about your New Colossus. And I want to talk about this whole project specifically about The New Colossus. Tell me about To Be American. So to be American was meant to be kind of a full length patriotic. It's it's not considered like a major work because it, although there's some connective material between some of the pieces on that album, um, it 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 could all also be separates. And so what it really was was just a program, a concert program, and an album that was that was this concept of of kind of cyclical and connective material from one thing to the next. And New Colossus kind of sits as as a not a centerpiece but as kind of a standalone a lot of them are arrangements that one's an original composition um 
And uh, it it was it had to be there. We we loved that. I mean, we we were go we were kind of going through the history of America, and that perfectly told the story of the of immigration. You know, right. everybody everybody knows that that piece of poetry, and so it uh it 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 just had to be there. And at that point in time, Brandon had not started composing for MCO yet. He had dabbled and done a few things but really hadn't done much. So you'll notice all the albums from To Be American and previous are almost, they're all mine actually. Not, I don't think Brandon had a single one on there. And um, and so it was, it was, it was, I had no choice. It was gonna be me and New Colossus needed to be composed. And so Brett, do it. Yeah, that was, that was how it happened. So yeah. <laughs> was there anything in particular you were looking for in that piece, uh, specific style, specific uh, musicality that you were looking for to yeah. convey the message? We MCO is an is an interesting and also not interesting audience base. I always like to say that we are gathering probably about 80 to 90 percent of our concert goers would normally not step foot into concert halls like that and see a performance like that. They're they're most of them aren't going to the symphony with their kids or or even themselves. Um, but what most people do relate to is um, Broadway and movie score. And so musical theater, I should say. So musical theater type type works and, and Broadway scores, or sorry, and uh, movie scores is still something that almost everybody relates to. And so when I set out to compose the melody of Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, which is the words that are that are repeated and, and kind of the, it's a kind of the standard bearer phrase of that poem. I just thought, I want this to be a palatable melody. I want it to be something that you would hear um, you know, on the stage of mm -hmm. uh, Broadway or, you know, so, so that's, that definitely happened. And then I get a little bit more artistic as it goes along and I, I text paint a little and, but definitely that give me your tired, your poor melody needed to be simple and singable and, you know, relatable. Awesome. All right. Well, we are now going to listen to the new Colossus from To Be American.
All right, our second piece today, Precious Savior, Dear Redeemer. So this was actually among one of the pieces I conducted in my first season with the Ensign Symphony and Chorus in Seattle when I started working with the ensemble back in 2018. So could you tell us about writing this and, and about how your faith in God plays an important role in your work? Absolutely. Um, this piece, I was getting my doctorate in Cincinnati. And so it was pre-MCO. And uh, my we were singing Precious Savior, Dear Redeemer to the, to the music that's found, at least in the hymn book in my church. And so, which is precious Savior, dear Redeemer, thy sweet message now in part. And I remember hearing it and hearing the meter and the tune. And to, to no, no offense to whoever wrote it, who's not alive anymore. So, you know, I can't offend many, many right now. I, I, I just didn't like it. I remember singing it going, this music doesn't fit the words. It doesn't fit the beauty and the sacredness of the, the text. And there were things that were happening spiritually in my life at the time to where each verse um, kind of patterned something I had been going through. Um, and, and so I, it, it, it was very clear that the, the text spoke to me. And so that was kind of one of the first times that I thought, wow, some of these old hymns, the music just doesn't match. And we all know how that happened. Oftentimes, I don't know about, I, I'd have to remember about that one, but oftentimes they were throwing musical tunes at, at text just because the meter fit. And so that one and Rock of Ages both, I just thought this doesn't work, that the, these old tunes don't work for this, for me at least. And so I just composed something new. And the Precious Savior has a Sulgan type of, of uh, feel to it. And I love that folk tune. And so I just sort of wanted to create something like that. And it really, as once I started, it came, that's one of those, some things you labor over for a long time, Precious Savior Melody just came instantly. It just was, it was already there in my head for some, you know, maybe from the pre-existence. I don't know. It was just there and I did it and it, it seemed to fit better for me. So, yeah, I know a lot of your compositions focus around faith and around God. So Sort of why, why do you go that direction with your compositions? I feel, first of all, we oftentimes compose for uh, the venue, you know, or compose for the job. Um, in this case, I do a lot of, I did a lot of, uh, still do a lot of serving in the church, leading choirs at church, those types of things. And so what ended up happening is I would just compose for whatever I was conducting or whatever I was doing. But, um, and so in that, in the, and same in my job, in that sense, it was kind of for the job, but I've also realized throughout my life, as I think more and more about it, it's what I love. It's what speaks to me. It's what's like, I, I mentioned before that melody was already in me. It's what's already in me. You know, mm -hmm. I have, I have a very, very, very strong belief in God and in my purpose on the earth and our purpose as humans on the earth and where we came from and why we're here and where we're going. I, 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 I've, firm convictions of all of that. And I just believe that music, as, as one of my church leaders said at one point in time, music is part of the language of the gods. And I think it's just been in us since before we came to earth and it's here when we're on the earth and we have an expectation to use it. So I do have lots of other loves and I do compose other types of music, um, popular music um, on the side, hardly anybody knows about it, but what I, what I, what I know I'm supposed to be doing with the bulk of my career and with my pastime is to just this music of God, you know, just, just expressing my faith um, through the music that I compose and listen awesome. to. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to listen to Precious Savior, Dear Redeemer.
All right, our third piece today, Jesus Nasierra, Ryu Ryu Chiu. So I haven't mentioned this yet on the program, but I'm actually part of the Idaho Chorus of MCO. And this was one of the pieces that we performed on our most recent concert. So when you're arranging a pre-existing song like this, how do you start? Do you map out where you want the piece to go? Um, I Yeah, I do. Like, especially with that one. The first thing I do when I when I go to, to compose or arrange is I research. So I researched all about Ryu Ryu Chiu, found out what the, what the text means, because nobody gets the text. Nobody even understands what Ryu Ryu Chiu is. To this day, I don't think anybody really knows um, from my research. But I, I do that first. And I find out what the origin is. That one was a span, an old Spanish Viantico, which is just, it's just a, like a Christmas carol, basically. Um, and so basically, I, once I did that, I start to go into my, into my, like I talked about that bank before of ideas that are just already there. And I start to sit down and, and, and do concepts. Well, I kind of want a little interlude here and I want this here. That one ended up being like, a conglomeration of the Count of Monte Cristo and Mask of Zorro and a couple of other, you know, movies with Spanish themes and um, or that kind of sounding music. And, you know, with the castanets and everything, because, again, I wanted to I wanted to relate to that modern movie going audience yeah. um, while at the same time going, here's this super, super old, like early Renaissance um song that none of you know and um or maybe have heard you know a modern version of it or maybe sang it in choir in high school or something but most people didn't and just kind of bring it to the 21st century and so that was my way of doing it was to throw in some of those movie score elements so and i admit that if you were to listen to those movie scores i just told you you will hear direct ripoffs or we call them artistically quotes quotations right. <laughs> so yeah <laughs> I I have been guilty of that myself. Yeah. <laughs> every compo every every composer has done it, and it's it's honestly the way to go because it yeah. also we do that. I have no shame in doing it because first of all, every composer did it, but second of all, when we do that, it just automatically connects audience to something nostalgic, something that's in them, something they've heard before. If you ever listen to Polar Express album, Alan Silvestri. It's the kind of album where you listen to it and go, I've heard these songs since I was a child, these Christmas songs, and yet they're newly composed. You didn't hear them since you were a child, but yeah. the elements and the way he does it and the way he quotes and draws from, from previous materials, it just makes you feel like you've heard it since you were born. And it's yeah. brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I love when my students listen to one of my new compositions, like, what is this? I've heard it before. Like, no, you, <laughs> no. you really haven't, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to listen yeah. we're going to listen here to Jesus Nasiera Rio Rio Chiu.
All right, our fourth and final piece today, and the Holy One of Israel must reign from Messiah in America. So many of our listeners may not be familiar with the story that you're telling in this oratorio. Could you tell us briefly what event you're writing about and why you decided to write it? So as an as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we um, we obviously have the Bible, but we also have the Book of Mormon, the hotly contested Book of Mormon. And uh, it's a work that I believe in um, as I do the Bible. And, you know, Handel and others have written just hundreds and hundreds of works um, from Bible text. And my brother came to me and asked me to write to a Book of Mormon text. In fact, he specifically said, I think it's time to have music composed at, or, or an oratorio or a, you know, presentation of this crowning event of the Book of Mormon, which is that Christ came to the Americas and visited and ministered to and taught the people in, in the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. And this would have occurred shortly after his resurrection, you know, in Palestine. And so it's, it's this resurrected savior coming to visit. And it's, it's, it's in the book of Mormon, there's a lot of material that discusses this. And so we tell the story more than going into the teachings. I say in a, in a kind of a, and kind of an explanation of the work that it would take another full-length oratorio to even go into the teachings, which which mirror the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings from the Bible. Of course, he taught the same Christian message to to the people he visited. But um, so this more just tells the account of kind of the the degradation and declination of the people, their wickedness, and then the coming of Christ. And the way the people responded when he came and just, you know, that kind of a thing until the point which he left them and ascended into heaven. That's how the oratorio ends. Yeah. What do you find the most difficult part about writing a full length major work like this? That it's a lot of music. <laughs> <laughs> the most difficult thing is, um, is that, is that it need it, in order to tell the story, it has to be a lot, it's, mine's an hour and a half. And here I am, you know, Handel whipped these things out in, you know, in, in weeks and months right. when he wrote his oratorios. But um, it, it, we're, we're lazier today, maybe, I don't know, or, or more distracted. And so it, it just was a lot of, it's a lot to compose. It's a lot to put down on paper, so to speak, or, you know, music software or whatever it is. And it just gets mind boggling with all the other things I was writing this. I wrote it in about two months and I, um, I mean, there were concepts going in, in my head before that, but when I sat down to do it, but at the same time, you're running an organization and you you're running rehearsals and you're, you know, you're raising a family and you're serving at church and you're doing all these things. And so that's, it's just having the time to do it. I often joked that I wanted to be sent to one of those, you know, compounds that they would send composers to that just, just leave me alone for six months. That doesn't yeah. happen. That's, that's <laughs> not a reality in my life. Right. So, Okay, well, we are going to listen to And the Holy One of Israel Must Reign from Messiah in America.
Well, Brett, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Um, right now, I am working on, well, what can I tell you about? Yeah. <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> um, right now, I'm actually working on two works for our upcoming semester. And they're both original compositions, similar to New Colossus um, that we heard earlier. One is The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the poem about the, the famous event where Paul Revere rode through the night. And uh, I think it's called Paul Revere's Ride or something, the original, but it, the famous phrase is the midnight ride of Paul Revere. And so I'm writing uh, that because we're doing a bit of a, a patriotic element to our spring program. And I'm also writing um, the Concord Hymn. The Concord Hymn is that um, famous hymn that talks about, that has the word, the shot heard around the world. That uh -huh. phrase that we all hear, that's where that comes from. And that was written um, for the, it was actually written um, when they erected the, the monument that celebrated those militiamen and that shot heard around the world, the beginning of the Revolutionary War. And so it was written years later, but um, it was sung to an old hymn tune that never stuck. And no one, from what we have you know, researched, no one has ever really written music to that. So I'm writing music to the Concord hymn, the shot heard around the world. Well, yeah. I look forward to performing it since I since I get to. Yeah. It. <laughs> and then there's long term projects I have too, but those are I won't even go into all that. All They're right, soon to be known. <laughs> so, if my listeners want to learn more about you and your music, uh, where is the best place to find you online? Millennial.org. It's just, just as easy as that. Millennial.org is. I have no personal websites or wiki pages or whatever. It's just there's. There's a Wikipedia article, but it's meager. So I would just go to millennial.org to hear about millennial choirs and orchestras. There's there's music, you can see videos, music, you can get a link to Millennial Music Publishing, which is where they can find music that's published. And But but you can source it all from millennial.org. Very cool. I encourage our listeners to go check that out. Well, hey, listeners out there, we are coming up on episode 100 of Movable Dough on Tuesday, January 16th. We are celebrating 100 episodes of the bigger, bolder, and jam-packed episode that'll knock your socks off. We'll have appearances from former guests, we'll revisit some favorite moments from past episodes, and we'll reveal which episode is number one according to listeners. If you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe to Movable Dough and then mark your calendars, Movable Doers, because episode 100 drops on Tuesday, January 16th. Don't just listen, keep the music moving. Well, Brett, it has been a joy today. Thank you so much for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. My guest today was composer Dr. Brett Stewart. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Saturday night.